That is my cue. This is Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks, brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring the innovation impulse from idea to business model and emerging best practices. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week, Mr. Fred Goldstein, who you will hear from shortly. For those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital, health plan, health wellness, and prevention space from disease management to population health. Fred is a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance, having served most recently as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health, LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. And now for a few words about our special guest, Paul Grundy. MD and MPH. Dr. Grundy is the founding president of the Patient-Centered Primary Care Collaborative, also known as PCPCC, and IBM's Director of Global Healthcare Transformation. In his role at IBM, Dr. Grundy develops and executes strategies that support IBM's healthcare industry transformation initiatives. Dr. Grundy is also an adjunct professor at the University of Utah Department of Family and Preventive Medicine. In 2012, he was elected to the Institute of Medicine, currently serves as a member of the Medical Education Futures Study National Advisory Board, and is chair of health policy of the ERISA Industry Committee. His work at IBM is directed towards shifting healthcare delivery around the world towards data-driven, accountable, consumer-focused, primary care-based systems through the adoption of new philosophies, primary care pilot programs, new incentive systems, and the information technology required to compete to implement such change. Dr. Grundy is known as the godfather of the patient-centered medical home. Do follow him on Twitter via at Paul underscore PCPCC and IBM Healthcare at IBM Healthcare. With that highlight-only introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Grundy. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Grundy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. We're, we're really pleased to have you on the show. As you know, this month we've been focusing on this issue of primary care and population health. And uh, what a great way to, to bring in the capstone key final presentation this month and have you join us. Perhaps to start, you could give us a little bit on the history of the patient-centered medical home. So let me start with the medical home for you, because I think that's really important to understand. It was first described in the medical literature by Cal Sia, um, pediatrician in Hawaii. And what he really talked about was a home for the data. If you're going to have data, where does it go? Who manages it was sort of the question that was being asked. And the next sort of group of folks who really did that in any meaningful way actually wasn't primary care. It was transplant surgeons. They had this incredibly sick population, um, and it became clear to them that they all had to sing from the same sheet of music, that, that, that the data about a patient had to be in one place. Anybody who acted on that patient had to act on that patient with that information at hand so that people weren't doing things uh, that were disconnected. And, you know, probably a decade or so ago when we looked at the healthcare we bought for our own employees in a role that I had a part of then, you know, the, the most common uh, sort of 
a process was to have somebody who would have five specialists all looking after them, and oftentimes, maybe most of the time, none of that data was coordinated. It's dangerous, it's toxic, I think, frankly, immoral and unethical uh, to continue to practice that way. So we, 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 we began looking at what was happening around the, the world and, and in the United States, and the primary care physicians were talking a lot about that concept. Um, the family physicians did a thing called the Future Family Medicine, the internist advanced primary care. You, you had Bodenheimer working on that concept in San Francisco. You had Ed Wagner working on the chronic disease model. And so we brought together all of the uh, primary care organizations in Washington, D.C., uh, and we asked them to give us a set of principles that we could all agree on um, that would begin to have a place in the delivery system to manage a population from a primary care. And those principles are now known as the joint principles of the patient-centered medical home, and I think that's where the term comes from. Got it. So while most of us in the healthcare world, and certainly those who are not in the healthcare world but but are told to go to their primary care or their, or their medical home, it's it it really the foundation of that is not the medical home for the patient so much as the center for the data that could then be used to effectively manage that patient. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, the the concept is if you're going to have data, where is it going to go? Who's going to be accountable for it was really the question that was being asked. And, you know, when you began getting some complexity in medicine, as we did with things like transplants, it became quite crystal clear that, geez, there had to be some place where all the data on a patient existed if you're going to manage that patient effectively. So it's the home for the data. So it it, it does not necessarily need to be, then, a primary care physician to serve as the patient-centered medical home. It could, in fact, be, as you said, a transplant a surgeon's office or maybe an HIV-AIDS clinic or something like that. that that's exactly right. I mean, I, I run into folks who are in infectious disease, uh, folks who have a panel of AIDS patients. Again, some of them quite complex, you know, and, and, and they have that same concept, right? I mean, it's, it's simply um, a place that's the home for the data and and... and a physician who uses that, who practices that, um, I would call and refer to them as the comprehensivist, right? Somebody who is managing a panel of patients in a comprehensive way versus a partialist who is, you know, doing an episode of care on an organ system. Got it. You touched upon also in your earlier discussion this idea of the principles um, owned by the Primary Care Society, and I know in the recent lecture you gave in the UK, you walked through some of those principles, and I think we've got a link to that up on the website, and if not, we'll make sure it's up there. Could you go through some of those principles? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the first principle is one of a trusting relationship, and I think that that's probably one of the most important principles there is. We all get sick. We're all going to die. Um, and, and we look for people in our lives that 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 will be there for us um, when when we're in need. I grew up in in West Africa. My parents are missionaries, and the power of that traditional healer, the power of that trusting relationship, is something that's really important. 
um, our patients tell us they want access, they want convenience, they want a, a way to engage their patients in a meeting, in their, their physician in a meaningful way. So it's about that. It's about a place in the delivery system that, that is centered on the patient's needs and, and there's a place to engage the patient. My cat, when I moved to the Hudson Valley a decade ago, was notified that it needed its immunizations. And I went to my primary care physician and, and I said, how many women in your practice are over age 55 and not had their mammograms? And he said, Paul, I opened my, my practice at, you know, at, at 9 in the morning and patients come in and tell me their problem and I help them with that problem. I have no idea how many are 55 or over. I mean, it's proactive management of a population. It's, it's, it's managing a patient even though they don't show up in your office, at least as well as my cat. Um, it's, it's being accountable for, for the data. It's, it's being accessible. Um, it's, 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 you know, 24-hour-7 access in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's, it's flexible scheduling. It's all about how you're going to engage your patient, you're going to follow up, you're going to follow through, and you're going to proactively manage your patient in a population down to the individual level. And and all of this is built on data, and obviously that example you gave where the physician didn't have basic knowledge of their panel or their population they were dealing with. So what what is IBM doing in this data space, or what do you see that's exciting in the data space to help providers do this work? Well, fundamentally, uh, you know, we think that data will do for the doctor's mind what X-ray and imaging has done for their vision. Um, and we've been putting a lot of time and energy and effort into sorting out and thinking through what you need to do to make it easier for the doc to deliver uh, the ability to manage the population. Um, one of the things that we just announced recently was the acquisition of Fitel and Explorus, and we put those together with Curum, um, all solutions that really look at getting at the data to manage a population. In fact, Fitel... I think is the best in class, the KLAS, of any of those tools out there. Um, and in some of the pilots that CMS has done, those places that have tools like that to manage a population were really successful. So beginning to get at enough data to begin to have that ingested by a whole new era of computing, um, which we refer to as cognitive, um, and and to be able to sort of mine the the unstructured data, digitized unstructured data, the, the the medical literature, and make that available at the point of care during that conversation with the doc, um, you know, so, so that the average doc isn't a thousand years behind in their reading. Um, I mean, just it's just an overwhelming task uh, and point of pain for for a physician, whether they're a specialist or or a comprehensivist to, to really have um, that sort of information at their fingertips. Um, you know, t to create a mechanism to assist, um, you know, really structuring that information um, in a way that's ingestible um, and, and begins to support the pain that now exists, um, you know, in, in getting at that data. Do you think, I know there was a recent uh, article I read uh, discussing this issue of uh, alerts and, you know, notifications and that maybe we're going to 
overdo that and cause a less responsive um, provider when dealing with the patient? Are you concerned about that at all? So, absolutely, very concerned about that. I mean, I think that I think that when you put all of that sort of a burden on the physician's head, um, it's bound to fail, right? I mean, there are two things that a physician should do, and only two. They should do difficult diagnostic dilemmas and relationships. Everything else should be done by somebody else or preferably automated um, in some in some way. Um, and, you know, and we shouldn't have... Um, a gazillion alerts uh, that hit a patient's desk. I mean, that, that that's just disruptive. I mean, what we need, and, and the reason why we think we need a whole new model of computing is that, you know, we're trying to program a computer to react in the way that we launch a rocket to Pluto. That works well for that, but it doesn't work so well for the human dilemma um, that that exists in healthcare. It's just a gazillion times more complicated. Um, and so probabilistic, right? How do you how do you how do you offer a physician at the point of care at the very time he needs it the information that's exactly what he needs from the literature, and at the same time, um, looking at a thousand other patients or a million other patients like them, so so, so that they're supported, um, you know, not to make a mistake. Um, I mean, it's a huge problem for us. We we we, we literally kill two. 747 plane loads of patients a day with medical errors. But, but the answer isn't to overwhelm them with, with more alerts, right? The answer is to have a team of patients, a team of, of approach to care in which, you know, you really have those folks that are experts in medication management and behavioral management all part of the team, and they're either connected in real space or virtually. That's happening. Mm-hmm. And you've touched upon this patient a little bit now, and we had a little discussion about patients and their role. Uh, what do you see as the role of the patient, and how do how do we get them ultimately involved in their own care? That's a great question. I like to think of this as really, really three legs of the stool that have to be built all at the same time. One is transforming practices to manage a population in a way from deficit care. Two is payment change to pay that to happen already and stop paying for it. An episode of care, and three is to create the right benefit design that that would incent the right behavior. Um, and that third part is just going to be f- a phenomenally important aspect: the science of rewards, the science of understanding what helps a patient do the right thing. Thinking about the patient not as a stone you're going to throw, but as a bird that's going to fly. What, what do you need to put around that patient to help them do the right thing? I I, uh, I spent some time in South Central Alaska Foundation looking at, you know, taking the worst managed diabetic population, I think, in the country and the winning of the Malcolm Baldridge Award and the RX Quiet Revolution video that came out on PBS. You know, beginning to understand how you can have a community support a patient, how you can create the right environment for that to happen, um, some exciting things are happening around the world in that. Um, in Vermont, they've taken two cents out of every sick care t- dollar and they've created the role of a community coordinator. And that community coordinator pulls the resources that a patient would need 
to support that patient. So the diabetic hiking club that meets on the weekend or the nutritionist in the grocery store or the, or the pharmacist in their local pharmacy and, and, and begins to actually put them, you know, to work with the patient. But then the community looks at how they're going to create a healthier environment, how they're going to add more days of the, of the farmer's market, how they're going to create that walking trail. And then you take it one step further. I just went to the island of Jersey, which is a little country off the coast of France, part of the English system, and they've taken the postal service worker and they've reprogrammed the postal service worker to stop at the homes of the patients that are having difficulty, the frail elderly, and check on them to make sure that they're okay and, and to make sure that, you know, that the meds that should be there are there and to ask a question or two and make sure the right to the doctor is there. But thinking about it in that sense, I think, is the way we need to do it. Part of it is benefit redesign. Part of it is incenting, trying to figure out the reward system and setting the right behavior. But that's just a small part because, you know, we humans don't think logically, right? We don't, we are not good at long-term rewards. You know, <laughs> a Hershey bar will, 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 will win out almost every time against, you know, I might have a heart attack in 50 years. That's just, you know, we're built that way, right? We're built to, like, hunt that woolly mammoth. Right, and we're seeing that move into behavioral economics and beginning to understand, as you said, humans are not rational beings. You you talked um, some about, you know, how we fix the primary care side of it, which is the supply side piece, and now you've touched on these broader concepts of creating communities of health, you know, work like Esther Dyson is doing or the Blue Zones or um, the Clinton Health Matters Initiative. In those larger schemes, what becomes the the provider role. I see oftentimes communities are now looking to providers to say, help us out here in the community. Do you believe the expertise lies within the provider community or is that really those social determinants have other groups who could perhaps do a better job in figuring that out? Well, well, I think of it as a team effort. I I think that first and foremost, everybody should have a healer in their life. Um, and they should have a trusting relationship with that healer. I think that's immensely important. Um, that's an incredible, important societal role. And, and we will need at some time somebody who's an expert in difficult diagnostic dilemmas, who's an expert at relationships and dealing with those difficult diagnostic dilemmas in sick care, right? But, but, but that has to be looped in. That becomes foundational for, for a delivery system of value. And, and, and it should be looped in to a community and community relationships and all the other kinds of things that you need at the community level. I, I happen to be a healthcare ambassador for the nation of Denmark, and you know th- they really look at that in a much more holistic way. Um, and, and, and so is the case in, uh, in in the example that I cited in Vermont, where they've really taken that two cents out of every sick care dollar, and it's taken this huge burden off of the primary care physician because all those other things begin to be supported in that role. So goodwill industry is involved. You know, the feeding program, the, the nutritional program at the school could be involved, the mayor's office, the jails, where we see a lot of behavioral uh, health issues occur. Um, that whole community is engaged at that level. So you begin to think about what it is you can do. And this young Anglican priest in the meeting that I was at a, in Vermont, says, and never again will we allow a diabetic to have an amputation in our community because we don't have a plan for that patient, right? We're, we're going to focus on that. The seniors in the community who who volunteer to care for children with special needs after school, 
you know, I thought that was going to be great for those kids, but who was grateful for the seniors because it gave them a purpose, right? It's that sort of thought process. I was on a call yesterday on the PCCCC uh, webinar, and, uh, and, and we had a lady who does a lot of the work in Washington for Meals on Wheels. And you just think of all those various resources that we could pull together to really support in a meaningful way, in a, compre- a much more comprehensive way, um, our patients, um, keeping them out of the hospital, right? Keeping them at home, keeping them fed at home. Um, again, that concept of the postal service worker, you know, who goes to every home every day anyway, being programmed to to do a call and check, to, to, to make sure that those things that should be there, need to be there, are there, um, I, you know, I think I think it, it, it's 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 not it's a holistic model, right? But but there's a really important role, and I think a key role in that role of the comprehensivist, um, you know, that interface between health and sick care. Yeah, I agree completely. That idea that you mentioned in Great Britain of the postal workers going out is just a fantastic one. And as we, as we look to this, David Nash and I uh, last year put out a piece called an accountable health organization versus an accountable care organization, which in essence was was creating a broader structure to look at health in the community. I guess the question around that gets down to, and first perhaps we look at it from a primary care physician level and then maybe at the community level, is is what? how do we fund that? What changes need to be made to reimbursement methodologies, first the primary care to get this going on, and then obviously broader? So there's only, there's only one way to herd a cat, and that's to move the food. Um, and that's what's happening, right, all over the world. I mean, the, the world is waking up, and if you listen to our Secretary of Health and Human Services describe how payment is going to change in the delivery system, it, it's, it's transformative. I mean, it's really quite interesting. Um, if you begin to fund a system in which a patient in a bed is a cost and not a profit. If you begin to support um, and, and, and value um, a patient kept at home and managed at home uh, in a reward system that does that, then that's what you're going to get. And that's what's, that's, that's what's beginning to happen, right? I mean, that's, that's, you know, beginning to manage risk is what accountable care is about. Right. We've had some previous guests on the show this month talk about this uh, risk issue, and a couple of them really believe that unless you went full capitated and essentially withdrew from the fee-for-service system, it was difficult to do true population health and these other services that currently aren't reimbursed. Do you think that's the case, or will these changes put in by CMS allow us to reach that tipping point? Well, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I, I think that some capitation is, is good. Um, I think if it's pure capitation, you, you, can't, you might get too little service. If it's pure FIFA service, you're going to get too much service. Um, I, I think of this in a blended way. Um, in the Danish system, uh, the physicians are rewarded in multiple ways, um, and that's beginning to happen in other places. But, but those services that you want done in primary care that you don't want to have go upstream, if you put a little component of fee-for-service for that, right, so if you want moles taken off there, if you want colon scoped there, and you don't want them going, you know, going into the hospital, um, th- then you might want to put a little component of fee-for-service there. Um, you know, 
um, if you want if you want a population managed, then you begin to pay to have that happen. In some models, the primary care physicians are looped into the whole community effort and how well those two or three indicators, two or three things that they're going to look at that year around the health of the community, they begin to be, be rewarded for that. Um, in a couple of communities that I've seen um, now in some of these pilots, service levels rewarded, right? So if you answer your email in 20 minutes versus 24 hours, um, you know, you get more money, right? So, so I think that, I think when you think about it in terms of dials that you put in place, and those dials are adjustable depending on whether they're being gained or not, is probably a more logical method than thinking that one single thing is going to do it all. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've seen some great places where capitation has worked, um, like in the Kaiser system. Um, but 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 I think I, but I think even they will have to figure out how to incent those variables that I just described. How do you deliver service? How do you incent that happening? How do you deliver population management? How do you incent that happening? Um, it's all about moving the food, right? Figuring out where the food's best placed. Certainly, and some of the some of that movement has been around meaningful use and the and high tech and. Um, rewarding providers for you know getting these systems set up. What's your thinking on those uh, and their impact so far? Well, I think it's just foundational. I, I think of it as uh, as really just paying for process change. Um, I mean that whole high tech act and the technology to do that is all about having in the hands of the providers the registry to do and manage a population to be able to get at. Um, you know, having your da- data uh, more accessible, um, because without that, um, you know, it's really going to be difficult to do for the next steps, right? So, so I just think that I just think that is part of the foundational build that has to occur, and I think of that as pay for process change. Mm-hmm. So we're coming up now on, on about a few minutes to go here. What's your what what most excites you about what's going on now? And are there any areas of concern or caveats you would have for others as they look at some of the transformation going on in healthcare? I mean, I think what excites me is that this is actually happening. Um, as I travel the country and travel the world, and I look at pilots that have been run, um, you know, you're seeing you're seeing change really happen. I, I was just on the phone yesterday with the folks in Michigan that are now in year six of their medical home pilot and their transformation, you're seeing a dramatic reduction in the need to use hospitals. You're seeing a much more likelihood that an ambulatory sensitive condition is going to be managed in an ambulatory environment. Um, you know, I, I, you know, this is just, it's early, but it's really exciting that we're beginning to get the payment reform we need. We're beginning to get the knowledge to manage a population from, you're getting to get support for the first time to really begin to use primary care in the right way, which is to manage a population from, rather than doing just little episodes of care. And it's really happening. It's really exciting. Then you have the technical changes that are coming down the pipe. Um, you know, so tools like Vitel that, that can automate that process of managing a population and just make it so much easier to do that. Um, and seeing that happen and seeing the differences between, you know, when you have the tools and you don't, it's just phenomenal um, and exciting 
to be alive. And then finally, you know, to begin to get at a whole investment from a company like IBM to really change the whole era of computing, um, which I think is fundamental to this to this really working. Um, beginning to happen is is is. I mean, it's 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 what makes me excited when I get up every morning. Yeah, I, I could be more excited over those areas too. I think we're making a lot of progress, but I'm wondering. I, I still have some concerns. I know we've had you know a fair amount of ACO data uh, showing not quite as successful as you've demonstrated with some of these PCMHs. Yet they use PCMHs as part of that. Is it a scalable pathway here, or is there going to be a binary choice where we just have to say you either got to do it this way or not? Oh, I think of it as a tipping point rather than an all-in-one. I think we should focus on those. I mean, that's the exciting thing about that whole, the, the, the various things that are happening all over the country and all over the world, is we have examples that are very successful. I, I think we need to look at those examples, try to pick out what's really worked, and try to scale that. Um, and there's just tremendous examples. I mean, I, I mean, that little innovation in Jersey where they use the postman, for example, or or in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they pay the specialist to answer the emails from the primary care docs. But those are things I never even thought of, and, and they're just they're happening. Um, I, 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 I think that change is not easy, and, and I, I think that it's really unrealistic to think that, you know, you're just going to be able to turn this on, and in one or two years you're going to see change. I mean, the, again, the... the uh, the experience in Michigan uh, on the webinar yesterday at PCCCC, you know, we're making progress mm-hmm. in year six and seven now, right? The Delta is getting better each year. This Absolutely. Not easy, um, right? Not easy. No, no, it's it's changing a large battleship. We we didn't even get in get time to get into some of the other topics such as culture and change, etc. And I'd love to have the opportunity, Paul, to get you back if you'd be available in the future. It would be a pleasure. Well, thank you, and thank you so much. It was very insightful. With that, I'll turn it back over to you, Greg. And thank you again, Dr. Grande. That will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Paul Grande, for his time and insights. Uh, we do this weekly uh, on um, uh, Pop Health Week, uh, and we will end this month with our wrap-up uh, with our colleague Douglas Goldstein, Eat Futures on top health uh, stuff in the news. And also, before I close, do follow Dr. Grundy on Twitter at, at Paul underscore PCPCC and at IBM Healthcare and on the web at www.pcpcc.org and www.ibm.com forward slash industries forward slash healthcare. So until then, for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.